I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're looking at the short story with Chris Power and his new collection, Mothers. Chris Power lives and works in London. His brief survey of the short story has appeared in The Guardian since 2007. And Chris has now written his own collection of short stories, Mothers, which we're going to be talking about today. Chris, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you describe Mothers for us, first of all? Uh, I can. It's a collection of ten short stories, three of which um, are linked. The first, middle and last story are about one woman, a woman called Ava, when she's uh, a young woman and then, and then later on in her life. And the rest of the stories are, I think, pretty pretty diverse. But um, after I'd written them, this sort of theme of mothers occurred to me when I was reading them as a whole, and that's that's where the, the title came from. So we'll come back to the book in a sec, but let's mm. talk about the short story, first of all. As I said, you've written this Guardian column for over a decade. Or yeah. What is it about that form that appeals to you? Uh, it's something I've always loved. It's funny because it, it seems to rapidly become oppositional. I don't think it is. I, I love... I love novels and I love short stories, but I think, I mean, at the time, if I'm being honest, when I started writing it, it was it was just sort of expedient. I kind of had an idea and I pitched it to The Guardian. Originally, I was going to write one a week, which obviously didn't last very long because that's insane. I noticed that not a lot of writing was being done about the short story. When you read reviews of short stories, certain sort of... Um, cliches popped up that I think still do pop up and it was always being talked about you know as the little brother or sister of the novel or if it was a sort of uh, testing ground for writers and I, I think you know you don't have to dig far into it to see that it's something quite different from that and some you know great writers have actually done some of their best work in the short story like you take someone like Hemingway for the sake of argument and it's really in his short stories where all his innovation and a lot of his talent lies and a lot of his novels are kind of uneven or or not so great it seems obvious to say you know you've been writing this column about short stories for ages have a go at your own collection of <laughs> short stories yourself but at the same time that's also an incredibly daunting thing to do you know how do you follow some of those people that you've been writing about so at what point like obviously you've been you've been writing these things for a, for a long time as well but at, at what point did you start to think that your own collection was going to come together i think ever since i was eight uh i've wanted to to write fiction 
I say eight because that's when I read Lord of the Rings and I was like, that's what I want to do. I'm going to write a thousand page novel about, you know, dragons and elves and stuff. Um, I should so- say this couldn't be further. From <laughs> yeah, do not. Yeah, buyer beware. There are no dragons and elves. No, there's anything wrong with dragons and elves. Yeah. So so in my in my mind, I was always headed towards that I guess but I kind of uh, I kind of kept my powder dry friends and family aside I never really talked about it very much and I wasn't really um, I was writing a lot of stuff but I wasn't uh, happy with it I wasn't sort of really sending it out or sharing it with anyone so yes I can understand why people are sort of like oh critic turned author but it doesn't feel like that internally because it's something I've always been attempting to do. And I guess it depends. Some critics are amazing critics and they don't want to write fiction. Other critics are, you know... I mean, the cliche is kind of all critics are wannabe writers who who can't cut the mustard or haven't managed it or whatever, which I don't think is true. I think it's a bit unfair. And some critics are just amazing critics and and don't feel a need to express themselves in terms of writing fiction. And others, you know, the, the line is more porous and they can do both i think you're using sort of different parts of your your brain maybe when you're when you're engaging in those two activities so the collection of stories in this book when did they come together over sort of what period have these been written so they came together about over like a seven year period i think uh, a couple of stories johnny kingdom and innsbruck are the two oldest stories albeit they've changed quite a bit over the intervening years but I, I I wrote them and they were the first things I'd written that were kind of close to or closer to how I wanted to write the kind of idea I had in my head of, of what I wanted my writing to to be like but then there was a, a bunch of interruptions very good interruptions I had a couple of kids uh, I worked on a novel that was not such a good interruption because I ended up abandoning it but I think I've heard that's a very uh important thing to to get out of your system the first failed novel so uh, there was a sort of sort of two or three year gap where I wasn't really working on stories and then I came back to them because I had a bunch of ideas that sort of wouldn't leave me alone and then there was a more concentrated sort of couple of years I guess where I was sort of really writing and editing and trying to get them you know that once I'd written sort of four or five then it seemed logical to to write enough for a for a collection and you've already mentioned this idea of the three link stories, so the mm. first, the last and the middle story are connected, they're about the same person. When did that idea to do that structure come? That actually came fairly late. I mean, I was I was sort of resistant to the... I, I didn't want to create sort of link stories unless there was some real reason for doing so. Uh, this story Innsbruck which is one of the oldest stories was actually about someone else it wasn't about a Swedish woman called Ava it was about an English woman called Rachel and when I'd written another story Summer 1976 which is the first story in the book about this young girl called Ava a friend of mine who uh, was a great reader and gave me a lot of great notes she'd sort of talked to me about how you could actually link several of the stories and while I was resistant to, to that or I sort of rejected the idea in the, in the radical form she presented it, there was something about Innsbruck and summer 1976 that seemed to fit together. Like Innsbruck, you're following this woman as she's travelling around Europe and she seems to be undergoing some kind of psychic crisis. And I wanted it to be fairly resistant to the reader. Like you're not really given a sort of... Uh, her backstory isn't sort of parceled out as it might be in a conventional short story to sort of help you understand why she's undergoing this but I wasn't anti the idea of that story being told outside the bounds of that story and then when I was thinking about this in terms of her actually being 
Ava, this this little girl that we meet in summer 1976, it just seemed to fit. Whether that's, you know, because I keep writing the same kinds of characters or whether it's because I keep returning to sort of certain themes. Yeah, there was a kind of click there when I thought about that. And then when that happened, then I wanted to sort of carry her story on or bring it to a kind of conclusion. And that's uh, when I wrote the, the final story, Ava, which was also the final story that I wrote. And you've mentioned that the other stories in the collection are diverse, and in, indeed they are, and you know, there's different characters in those different places. But once you've read the whole collection, there is definitely similar themes across the book. And you mentioned the idea of mothers, but also this idea of psychic distress mm. carries through all of them, doesn't it? Tell me about some of the, the, the common themes that go through the book. Well, I think it's interesting because I've, I've, I've been sort of learning about the themes of the book as people have been reading it and, and responding to it. Because I sort of, in the case of each story, I, I've, I haven't started any of these stories by saying, well, I want to write a story about X or Y. And even when I've finished them, I can't necessarily say, oh, it's a story about X or Y. But obviously, people come to the stories and, and you naturally look for meaning as a reader. You're trying to, you're kind of getting your bearings. And so, so it's, been a, it's been a learning process for me as well, people discussing or asking me questions about them but it, I think it's certainly fair to say that there's a lot of um, you know people looking for answers or looking for some sort of connection um, obviously Ava in each of her stories she's you know someone who suffers grief as a as a child and then she's you know maybe married to not an optimal partner and later in her life doesn't really recognize the problem she's she's undergoing um Liam, another character in a story called Above the Wedding, is um, someone who's just sort of uncertain in himself, kind of uncomfortable in his skin. He's in his 20s and his life is still sort of um, forming and he doesn't quite know what shape it's taking. And he develops this this sort of obsessional love for this Spanish man called Miguel and, and ends up going to his wedding and trying to proclaim his love uh, for him there. Elsewhere, there's, there's a narrator in a story called The Colossus of Rhodes, who's sort of struggling with, with something, part of his past that he's never really discussed, uh, this encounter he had when he was uh, molested on a holiday in Greece. And he's just sort of struggling to process that in terms of his kids and how if something like that happened to them, the idea that, that something like that could happen to your child and you wouldn't necessarily know about it is something that sort of causes him a great deal of, uh, of anxiety. And I think... You know, in all the stories, I guess something that a short story does well or lends itself to is moments of crisis. So you are sort of naturally drawn to those, or at least I am, in the sort of stories that I like. They tend to be less the sort of slice of life, if you like, and more those moments of, of drama and crisis where, where there's the sort of the crux of a situation is being is being got at. We're going to come back to a couple of those stories in more detail in a, in a bit, but I wanted to talk about the your writing style. The stories are incredibly pared down, and I think that also reflects in that theme of, of depression that has thread through the book, because often the characters just can't express themselves, can't really say what it is. You mentioned mm. the story of the Colossus of Rhodes, and again, I, that's one I want to come back to, but there's a line in that, stories need everything extraneous to be stripped away, and that's what you do, and those are not, that's not what J.R.R. Tolkien does. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, you know, tell me about that style, you know, that writing in that style where that you, it is basically stripped down to the bare bones. Um, I think that's, yeah, that, that's something that appeals to me. The writing I like, is uh well actually let me rephrase that because i like 
I like a lot of writing that's that's sort of baroque by comparison, but I think the the subject should be reflected in the mode of of telling, I think. So if you are talking about characters who struggle to um, express themselves, then I guess I kind of wanted that to be reflected in the writing in a sense that minimal in a way, but not necessarily in a Raymond Carver kind of way. Um, But I find in a lot of writing, I often find there's, there's too much of it, like it's too chatty or something. I'm not quite sure what the right word is. But I, I kind of I want to do as much as I can with as little as I need, if you like. And I think I think that possibly loses some readers because they find it too austere, maybe, just from having to, you know, talk to to some people who've read the book and they've kind of struggled with it a little, whereas other people have, you know, I think it's more maybe more extreme than I realize it is because from people saying that to me I'm like oh I I didn't realize it was so you know I think one review called it it was a favorable review but it sort of said it's almost bald at points you know the writing's so stripped back which I take and and kind of uh enjoy but you've um, carried that off I mean that that's the the strength of it is that you know that really works mm, Well I hope so I think um yeah it's certainly kind of responding to yeah, maybe to some of the writing that I love that sort of works with very little. I mean, I talked about Hemingway before, especially his like his early stories are kind of incredible in in what he achieves with with so little. And it's not it's not that it's a trick. It's that the the sort of characters he's talking about, they almost demand that kind of response. If you look at a story like Big Two-Hearted River, it's someone who is struggling with you know, post-traumatic stress and they don't know how to access their feelings. And so they're talking about fishing the swamp, but they're really talking about something very different. But that language feels right that it should be so stripped back. I mean, later in his career, that became an affectation. It was just the way he wrote whatever the subject was and it doesn't really fit it. But the way he was writing in that sort of post-war period was, it was very apt, I think. I would hope that, yeah, that the style is always appropriate to the story you're telling or the characters you're describing rather than you know this is the way I write and whether I'm writing about uh yeah dragons and wizards or whether I'm writing about you know some guy on holiday it's always going to be the same just one more thing before we talk about some of the stories a lot of them are set in Sweden what's your connection with Sweden my Swedish connection is uh my wife who is Swedish we go there you know two or three times a year and I've spent a fair bit of time there over the last 10 years. And indeed, her mum told me a great anecdote about a kid throwing an apple through a window who she then later blamed for another incident when he was innocent of that, which uh, which was this sort of anecdote that formed the, the nub of this story, Summer 1976. And in fact, her name is Ava, uh, so I've, I've retained oh, God, that. No. Although, yeah, I did, uh, did apologise when I handed her the... The manuscript and said, look, this isn't you. I've just, you know, I just wanted to keep that name. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Chris Power. We're talking about his collection of short stories, Mothers. And Chris, I want to stick with Ava for now and those, the first, last and middle stories. Mm. Summer of 1976, Innsbruck and Ava. And the idea of motherhood in those three stories, the the beginning of the story is Ava's childhood. Um, She's narrating a story about her mother is in the story. Mm. Um, Later on, she becomes a mother herself and then latterly a grandmother as well. Let's talk Mm. about that, sort of the idea of motherhood that threads through those three stories. Well, it's a... Obviously, a fundamental relationship. Like certainly for me, when I was growing up, it was like, you know, my first ten years of life. My mum was like everything. My dad was around, but he was, you know, he worked late. I would just see him for little slices of the of the day, and I was just yeah spending a lot of time with my mum, and she was yeah everything. And I, I think when I was sort of revisiting childhood, when I was writing summer 1976 that relationship kind of stood out this relationship Ava has with her with her mother you know it's it's not told from the perspective of Ava as a as an 11 year old girl but it's her later in life she's remembering this period and obviously with everything she's gone through in the intervening years that's that's described in the other two stories she's sort of returning to these these fundamental relationships and I think knowing that what happens to her and how she struggles with motherhood it was always interesting to me I, I i went out with someone in my sort of early 20s and she'd grown up living with her dad and her mum had left she still had a relationship with her mum but her mum had left and i remember that was always when sort of people learned that they were always quite shocked and it was like because the mum doesn't leave you know if the family splits up the kids stay with her but that was like the conventional thing and also having kids and and sort of seeing uh motherhood from you know minute zero on up it was really interesting to see how you know this sort of disparity that that for my sins I wasn't really hadn't really thought about before but how for dads you kind of 
do something above average and you're like praised as like oh he's a great dad like isn't that wonderful but for mothers like the standard is perfection and if you drop below it then you're castigated or just people will you know respond negatively and it's just such a such a disparity and obviously so unfair and so encoded in so many ways into into society that that when I was writing about Ava I did want to you know explore someone who who's really struggling and it's not it's not her fault she's ill and yet she's sort of really sidelined or doesn't necessarily get the help she needs and that's something that I wanted to also show in the way those stories are told because she tell she's telling her story in summer 1976 and then in Innsbruck you're kind of close third to her albeit a kind of fairly chilly close third because you don't get those you don't get much of her internal thought processes and then and then Ava the third story is actually close third to her estranged husband so she sort of grows more distant through the through the book as she struggles with these mental problems she has and indeed the the first story is written in the first person from Ava's perspective, although as a, as you said, it's not as a young girl, it's mm. as her, an older age. And there is a reason for that, which pays off later in the book, which we, we don't have to talk about. But the other two stories are written in the third person. Um, and I'll often talk to, to, to writers about, you know, what register do you, do you prefer? But interestingly, in this case, you're writing about the same character in two different registers. So mm. tell me about that. Well, I think it was a case of, yeah, who's telling the story and what, what effect did I want to achieve? And I know that, as I'd said, when I, when I first wrote Innsbruck, some people were like, oh, I think I could, could do with like more backstory or why is she you know what's she fleeing from why is she so sort of um upset like what what's the issue but I, I didn't want that to be told I almost wanted it to you know I wanted you to feel slightly uh repulsed as in pushed away by the way the story was was told because you know with depression and with mental illness often the sufferer sort of rejects the help that they're offered and often those offers of help dry up as well because it can be so difficult to to be around and it is like a sort of distancing effect you do feel these people are kind of you know set adrift in some way there's an amazing david foster wallace story called the depressed person that by the end of it you're just completely sick of this person he's describing and what he's basically done over the course of the story is to make you feel how it is to be near someone who's depressed and how your sympathy just sort of drains away and your empathy drains away and in the end you're just infuriated and sort of out of patience and you throw your hands up and walk away and that's how you know that's why it's such a insidious illness because you know if you've got a physical ailment people want to help you and it's easier to sort of show charts and graphs of progression and how treatment's going etc etc and um and with with mental illness it's obviously so much more difficult to to track and so much more difficult to to sort of say, oh, you're in remission or, oh, you're clear or, you know, we're still learning ways to properly gauge how someone's ill or the, you know, the DSM, this Bible of mental illness is still changing classifications every every new edition. So suddenly schizophrenia doesn't exist or it does, but now it's these symptoms rather than these symptoms. So it's this, it's this idea of, you know, of everything being a struggle from caring to someone to diagnosing someone. And I think that's why in the course of those stories, 
is that the narration kind of shifts away from Ava as she actually physically removes herself from her family and she sort of goes on this, you know, she sort of leaves the country and she's only communicating by postcards which arrive intermittently from seemingly random locations. Yeah, she, she's grown more and more distant as the book's gone on. And also that that's kind of why I wanted to space the stories out as well rather than have them as a sort of one ninety page lump because time passes and things shift in between each story so it felt natural to kind of for the reader to go away and read other stories and then come back to Ava after a period of time had, had elapsed and sort of see what what had changed in her in her life. I wanted to say something about the the image of the travel guide that Ava has as well because it's an incredibly strong image this out of date travel guide that used to belong to her mother mm. that she's sort of uselessly using as, as as her guide on these aimless trips around Europe yeah it's it's kind of her one memento of her of her mum and it's this kind of yeah mid mid 70s travel guide so obviously the bars and restaurants it lists lots of them are closed down or the phone numbers you know are disconnected or whatever but she kind of uses it I don't know her her I Ching or something to give her some direction around in her in her travel but really as a kind of as some sort of link to her mum you know who she lost at a, a sort of such a such a crucial time not there's any good time to lose a to lose a parent but um the book again it arose kind of naturally rather than hunting for a symbol but given that she was already you know because I'd already written Innsbruck about this woman who was traveling that sort of aspect of Ava seemed to fit because she's I mean she grew up in sort of a suburb of Stockholm and she sort of wanted to travel as her thing as a child and so it's so it's become a kind of a sort of refuge for her but she is obviously like physically trying to flee something that can't necessarily be escaped because she's she's taking it with her wherever she goes because it is inside her. Can we talk about the Colossus of Rhodes story mm. for a moment? And and in this story, you've all you already mentioned what happens in this story, but you know, the, there's just two parallel narratives where our narrator is is on holiday with his family, is mm. recounting this story of a holiday he took in the past where he was molested. But then brilliantly, you also sort of deconstruct the writing of that story. And at the end, he starts to tell us about writing that story. Tell me about that. Well, so that was, um, it was a problem story. I mean, all these stories were problem stories at various stages of their of their development. But in that case, I'd, I'd written a much longer story that was just about the holiday the narrator takes when he's a 10-year-old boy, where, as you say, he's molested. And for a start, being molested and another couple of incidents happen, like a, the death of a cat and an accident involving a zip and, and his penis. It was already too much for a story to bear. It was like, well, this is two symbolic events, too many, surely, um, or crux crisis points. So I was struggling with, with how to tell it. And I, I met a woman at a party, a lawyer, and I was actually talking to her about writing. And she uh, asked me what I was working on. I said, I'm writing this story, but I'm having trouble finishing it. She said, well, what's it about? So I sort of gave her a brief description. And I talked about this incident of, of molestation. And, and she was saying, and I was talking about the fact that it, that it happened to me and it was sort of autobiographical story. And she said, oh, well, that happened to you once because that happens to girls like all the time. And she wasn't, you know, demeaning what I'd said, but she, was just, she just opened up this whole different perspective about the story. And I thought it, it was just fascinating. I wanted to kind of include that. So that that sort of led to this idea of first of yeah the frame narrative and the narrator being on holiday. Because actually, when I first drafted the story, I didn't have kids. And then when I sort of was revising it, I had 
two daughters and so I was sort of projecting a few years on and being on holiday with them and you know that that doubling kind of giving some perspective to to what happened to the narrator when he was a kid but also the idea of bringing in that actual chat I had with the lawyer kind of gave a new perspective to the story and allowed me to explore or explain or talk about those three events happening that that really aren't logical in terms of a story like I think that's where that line you quoted about stories needing everything extraneous to be stripped away I sort of talk about the other people that I met on that holiday and the other things that happened that there was no room for in the story because yeah stories need some sort of structure and they don't allow for that sprawl so yeah, it just became an interesting way to look at it and to look at how how truth and fiction kind of commingle because part of that story is about the fact that I hadn't ever talked to my parents about what happened on that holiday and how that sort of, you know, changes your your perception of those events. If the majority of people for them in their reality it didn't happen, it just didn't exist. It sort of makes you question it yourself or or it certainly makes you not want to necessarily spark up and and change their reality of this holiday you took years ago because you're like oh actually this happened on it and I never talked to you about it so that that idea of of truth and of revelation and of how yeah of how talking about something sort of embeds something in your your reality or changes your your memory of it sort of became important to the way that story's told I just wanted to mention the the story, the Havang Dolman, as well. There's a couple of stories in the book that seem at first glance, this one explicitly, but also run as well, the story, to be involving some element of the supernatural, that sort of story. But again, this Dolman story, it's really a story about a man dealing with depression again, isn't it? It's basically having a having a massive breakdown at this at this site. Uh, I think in yeah, in some ways, definitely. I think um I mean, I do love, I love ghost stories, and I really wanted to write a ghost story. But the ghost stories that I love most of all, say something like, uh, Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, M.R. James, is, I mean, I say clearly, it's not, you, you can interpret it in a lot of different ways, but I certainly interpret it as someone undergoing a breakdown and a mental crisis. And there's a lot of sort of, uh, there seems to be a lot of, you know, sexual repression in that story. And so when I was writing, yeah, Harving Dolman, which was, again, sort of drawn from reality in the sense that my wife and I went on this trip on the on the sort of southeast coast of Sweden, this region called Skorna, which is beautiful. And it's got a lot of sort of Iron Age and Stone Age sites. We really didn't go looking for them. They're just under your feet everywhere you, everywhere you turn down there. Um, there's this amazing, like, Neolithic, you know, burial site by this beach. I, it was just one of those days where you just, there were a lot of sort of, not strange events, but events that could be strange with a cast given to them. And that just started me thinking about this man in this landscape. He's an archaeologist and he's been at this conference in Lund, this university town in the south of Sweden. And he's he's sort of, you know, killing some time before he goes back to England by visiting these sites. And yes, he's clearly, as the story goes on, it becomes apparent that he's he's trying to sort of seemingly outrun some kind of malign force but yeah that malign force whether it's uh, supernatural or whether again it's it's something within him is um yeah is is for the reader to I like interpret how, it in a lot of those stories the, that character that that happens with will be somebody who's like you know a bit of a skeptic or something and then they go and have this mm. supernatural experience and while he is an archaeologist and he says at like one point you know i'm not particularly interested in this you know in in, in that sort of neolithic era mm. in, in his work but he's 
he's also just like a bit of an asshole. And I thought that was a really great twist on that same thing. Like he's like, oh, only six people turned up at my lecture and they, they didn't understand it. Yes, no, I think he is. Uh, he's got. He's he's a fairly arrogant person. Uh, but I think that's as the story goes on that it becomes apparent that that arrogance is a kind of defense mechanism. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that he's not the happiest of people. And again, I think I wanted to. I didn't really want to like. It's written by him and I didn't want to sort of put in a load of self-analysis because he's not that kind of person. Like he's writing this account of something that because it was so strange that he kind of can't get it out of his head. But I think the sort of glimpses you get into his life or the kind of psychic hinterland that might have led to this event i wanted that to be coherent with the idea of him telling the story rather than squeeze in some exposition or have him sort of reflect on why this might be the case again which maybe is is you know getting back to that kind of paired downness again but i think it's important to you know with the first person narration i remember talking to colin barrett a few years ago and he talked he's had a great phrase but which i've now forgotten that was something about the deceptive ease of first person something like that and it is a really it's a really tricky form because you think well I can just write you know as if it's me or I can just write you know as a a monologue but it rapidly becomes this sort of test of what could you really say in this situation or what would someone say in this situation the great problem with ghost stories often are first person because it is that sort of an account of of something strange that happened you'll often see those rules being broken it's always where the the magic of it sort of snaps like mr james didn't do that certainly in his best stories but hp lovecraft sometimes or quite often does it because he'll just shoehorn in a plot point you know and it's like well this person just wouldn't say that or oh my god they're coming up the stairs i can hear them now and it's like well, I don't think you're still going to be writing in your journal if the if the <laughs> murder set cultists are coming up your stairs. But hopefully in that story, there is enough for you to kind of, yeah, to bring your theory of what truly is going down at the Harving Dolman. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Chris Power, and we're talking about his story collection, Mothers. The story Johnny Kingdom, which basically, to, to summarise very quickly, concerns a uh, a stand-up comedian who is his basically he's got writer's block, and he's basically doing a, a tribute act to a a fictional, we'll say, big name stand-up comedian who's now dead, and he's doing mm. this for like you know old people's homes and bachelor parties and stuff. Mm. And um, I love this story; it's great. While I was reading it. And there's another, um, one of the other stories, Above the Wedding, also um, talks about writer's block as well. Crops up a couple of times. But particularly in this one, I'm picturing you writing this column for years and years about other people (laughs) writing short stories while you try to write short stories yourself. (laughs) Yeah, this was the first story that I I wrote that that I was, you know, really happy with. And so I I definitely didn't have writer's block when I was, you know, it it wasn't a a produce that. I guess guess that is a great... fear that all writers have that they're just going to think well, what's what's the next idea like where's it going to come from but I think what I was more interested in in Johnny Kingdom was that idea of someone creating something creating some art and you know maybe it not being any good like maybe there's a sort of self-delusion like his he's got writer's block he's had some early success with his own stand-up 
and then it kind of dries up and he starts relying on this comedian's jokes to kind of get him through sets and then that turns into him becoming yeah this tribute act which he resists and is deeply unhappy about because that in turn spawns some some further success before he ends up where we meet him on the yeah old people's home and and bachelor party circuit but kind of like the harving dolman where you don't know if it's this guy's own issues or if he's encountered something supernatural in johnny kingdom you don't actually know whether andy the guy who's who's the the comedian in question is you don't really know how good he ever was like if he was just good enough to sort of you know be a hit at an open mic or whether he was really good enough to properly have a career in in comedy and i like the idea of leaving that open because you know every writer or painter or singer whomever it is you know if they're putting their work out there they believe in it they're not sort of cynical and just saying oh it's crap but i'm just gonna put it out anyway like they really believe in it and invariably some people will think it's crap and some people will think it's great and those sort of ratios alter radically depending on the on the artist and i think it's yeah it's fascinating to me to think that or the great fear i suppose when you are putting something out in the world is oh what if i think it's good but but it's not actually good and like i'm i'm interested in that kind of belief that you have to have to actually go out there and and say it is good or how, or how you come to that sort of uh, acceptance or relationship with your own work and it can take a very long time as it did in my case like I was writing bullshit for years that I just didn't want to foist on anyone so it's that idea of working at it I guess and I think with Andy it is one of the more optimistic stories in the book I think this isn't a book where there are is heaps of optimism but I think in his case because he does have this sort of realization when he's performing this stand-up routine of how he can actually turn his his experience that he's had over the last few years into something positive and he sees a way of kind of writing his way out of the predicament he's in what we don't know is whether that will actually be any good or not but I think it's um I'd like to think it will be well that's a good positive place for us to to finish the questions but if you would read us a bit of the of the book yeah I'm going to read a scene from Innsbruck which is the middle Ava story from the harbour they took a taxi and Josip showed her the cave where Calypso kept Odysseus, broken ground sloping down to it. Alone, close to the cave's mouth, Josip stood behind Ava and pressed his erection against her back. She leaned back slightly and his arms snaked around her. He cupped her breasts and squeezed. She squirmed and he continued to press until finally they were dropped into a sort of crouch, like skiers. His wrists were in her armpits and his elbows pressed into the top of her tensed thighs. The sea stretched out in front of her. His shallow breaths were sour with tobacco. Let's go closer, she said. He straightened up immediately and stepped away from her. He seemed angry. Come, he said, as if ending a dispute. I will show you. That night, they ate at an open-air trattoria, sitting on a stone terrace set with white plastic chairs and tables. Ava's hunger was enormous. She drank a carafe of white wine, Millet wine, Josip told her with pride as he filled her glass, and started another before their food arrived. She called for schnapps when their main course came. To our meeting, she said, cracking her glass against his. She tried to teach him Heilangor, a drinking song, but he couldn't follow the words. With her coffee, she drank an oily, abrasive grappa. There was a dance floor below the terrace and a band playing folk songs and pop. Josip stared at her intently as they danced. He looked as if he wanted to scold her and was searching for the words to express his anger. 
because of what had happened at the cave? Let him stew, Ava thought. She was determined to have fun tonight. She was surprised at how lightly he moved. He became less angular when he danced. He moved his hips. She wanted to have sex with him. She pictured the scene from the afternoon as if she had been someone else standing at the cave's mouth, watching them fuck. She half-crouching, he behind her with brow creased, the same furious look on his face as now, pressing himself further and further inside her. The dance floor had filled. Turning her back, Ava danced into Yossip. She pulled his arms around her waist. She ground against him and lifted his hands towards her breasts. But when he realised what she was doing, he resisted, and she couldn't move them any more. The music's tempo increased, and her movements grew wilder. She collided with other dancers. She piled her hair on top of her head and left her hands buried in it as she thrashed her head from side to side. She ground against him more firmly still, and colours sprayed across her closed eyes as the band played louder, faster. The accordion reminded her of fairgrounds. The sound of it made her feel sick. Let's sit down, she said. Back from the dance floor stood a grove of tall pines. White chairs scattered in twos and threes between the trees almost glowed in the night. The darkness throbbed with the din of cicadas. Ava could smell the trees, their needles soft beneath her sandals. She sat down and felt a layer of gritty dust against her legs. Yossip lit a cigarette. Can I have one of those, she said. He pulled the packet from his shirt pocket and pushed up the lid with his thumb. She hadn't smoked in many years, and the flavour brought back the first time she tried in a school friend's garden shed. The shed had smelled of creosote, motor oil and pine resin. The smoke made her light-headed. Her queasiness gone, she stretched with pleasure. Her eyes were getting used to the dark, and the tree's bark seemed to shine. It was patterned. Grey scales, dagger-shaped, repeated over and over, with darker channels between them. She reached out and gripped one of the scales. The wood was soft and came off the tree very easily. Why do you look like that when you dance? she asked, waving the piece of bark slowly like a fan. Look like what? Yossip said. Angry, she said. I look angry. Yes, like... She pulled a face like his, only more grotesque, brows low and lips in a tight pout. Like what? Like that. I just did it. It was too dark for him to see, of course. She could only make out the shifting glint of his eyes. When I dance, I concentrate, he said. Dancing is not easy. What else do you do that requires such concentration? She heard her words slur. He was silent. This wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to be playful, and for Yossip to be playful in response, and for this lightness to be effortless and to last and last. But he was silent. She threw the bark at him, and it hit his chin and fell onto his chest. He left it there and didn't say anything. Then you say, she prompted, smiling. He was silent. The band was playing something slow now, and deeper in the darkness, above the insect hiss, a man's voice spoke sharply. He spoke for a long time, and when he finally stopped, there was no reply. So I've been talking to Chris Power. We've been talking about his debut collection of short stories, Mothers, which is out now from Faber and Faber. Chris, thanks so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you. Loved it.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.